Hello and welcome to the Politics Home podcast. I'm Matt Honeycomb Foster and I'm joined once again in the historic surrounds of Westminster's lobby room by Politics Home editor Kevin Schofield. Hi Kevin. Hello, good morning Matt. And um, back in the guest chair today is the fantastic Sienna Rogers, editor of the Labourlist website. Cheers for joining us Sienna. Thank you. Um, It's fair to say things are not going swimmingly in Boris Johnson's quest to strike a Brexit deal with the European Union. After unveiling his big plan to axe the backstop last week, substantial talks appear to have given way to a bitter war of words, with some pointing the finger at the PM's top advisor, Dominic Cummings, for a big escalation in rhetoric. So can Boris still clinch a deal at the 11th hour? Is Brussels being unreasonable? And should anonymous advisers take off the mask? Meanwhile, Labour watchers have been gripped by a big internal bust-up at the top of the party as Jeremy Corbyn's loyal aide, Kerry Murphy, was shuffled out of Labour HQ. Um, What does the shift say about the direction of the party and its plans to fight a general election? Plus, we're going to take a close look at Labour's quest to find candidates to fight the next election. But first, as ever, to Brexit and the apparent collapse of attempts to try and find a deal by the 31st of October Kevin, last week Boris Johnson unveiled this this big plan to scrap the Irish backstop from the EU deal, and um, Brussels seems to kind of keep its its powder dry. We were waiting for a response. Yeah. Um, that's come this week essentially, and um, it's not been a great one, has it? It's not been great. I mean, they've tried to be as diplomatic as as they can, but systematically, each significant EU figure. So you've got the European Parliament president. Uh, the European Commission President, the European Council President and the Chief Brexit Negotiator have all, to a greater or lesser extent, said this plan will not fly. Um, It doesn't do what it's supposed to do in replacing the backstop with a um, a, a legally watertight and usable alternative to keeping the Irish border open. And they've basically said, without absolutely killing it off, they have said, as it stands at the moment, we need more concessions from the from the UK. Also to throw into that, Angela Merkel had a pretty explosive phone call with Boris Johnson a couple of mornings ago, in which, if number 10 sources are to be believed, she more or less killed off the deal by saying, well, look, anything which doesn't involve Northern Ireland remaining in the customs union after Brexit will not fly. And that is a red line as far as the UK government's concerned. Let's talk about that Merkel intervention, because that was probably one of the most... That that felt like the most heated moment of the week, really. Um, Now, obviously, the um, German Chancellery have not released any details of the call. They're they're kind of keeping some on it. Um, But the the briefing from the number 10 source was um, incredibly gloomy and pessimistic about what that meant for a deal. Yeah. Um, Do you think people have put a little too much faith in Angela Merkel to kind of... uh, uh, save the day here, and that actually, when it's when it's come to it, she's uh, not keen on this one. Yeah, well, I mean that, that that has always been the way. I mean, I know that David Cameron, I think, was relied heavily on Angela Merkel to to give a massive concession when he was doing his renegotiation of an EU membership before the referendum. That never happened. I think Theresa May was looking for Angela Merkel to help her out when she was trying to sort a deal. It didn't happen. Um, so I think really British politicians should should wise up a little bit and realise that Angela Merkel is not going to ride to the rescue of a British Prime Minister if it's not in her interest. What is interesting, and just to give people, I think, a little bit of background, about normally with these phone calls between the Prime Minister and other leaders, we get from Number 10 officially a, what we call a readout, which is a generally a pretty anodyne description 
of a call. I mean, it doesn't give you a transcript or anything detail, but it will say in, in general terms, this is what they discussed. They discussed Brexit and the importance of this, that and the other. But what was different about this call the other day was that within an hour or so of the call taking place, um, broadcasters had been given a very lengthy quote by a senior number 10 source, basically absolutely annihilating Angela Merkel. They described it as a clarifying moment, the thing I mentioned about Northern Ireland and, and the customs union, and more or less saying she's killed off the deal. Now, that was pretty incendiary because we don't, as I said, we don't normally get that level of detail um, on these private phone calls involving the Prime Minister. And as you say, the German government didn't want to go there. So that caused in itself a massive storm because it was really undiplomatic and a very uh, incendiary move, really, for this um, source. Let's call him Dominic Cummings, for argument's sake, um, to put that out there, because it's putting a very, very partial slant, a one-sided slant on the call from a from a, a not just a UK government point of view, but from a Brexiteer point of view. You know, um, and it's it's all part of this blame game that's going on at the moment and it does number 10 no favour uh, no harm whatsoever to make it look as though they're being the reasonable ones but you know those those uh, nasty Germans or those nasty Europeans aren't willing to give us any concessions in, in return Sian do you think the UK should have been uh, surprised by the uh, response from the EU over the past few days or could they no. have seen it coming no I don't I mean call me a conspiracy theorist but I don't I wasn't surprised and I don't think anyone else was surprised including number 10 I think it's it's fair to say that it is all posturing it's all part of this narrative of saying look here we've been incredibly reasonable we've made all these compromises which are in fact just sort of vaguely abiding by the Good Friday Agreement law and even that's questionable and how re- unreasonable of you not to accept uh, this brilliant offer that we've just made but actually it's a sort of fantasy solution that you've rejected a very long time ago. Kevin, number 10 are obviously adamant that they are still trying to, to strike a deal and of course Boris Johnson is having talks today with um, Leo Varadkar um, yeah. in uh, the, the, the meeting in the... In the northwest of England is all North. we've been told but we believe it's in or around Liverpool. Is there much for them to talk about at this stage? Or will they just be throwing things at each other? Well, I mean, this is absolutely make-or-break crunch time. Um, the end of the week is the deadline that's been set by both Downing Street and the EU for any kind of breakthrough agreement to be reached because next week is the European Council Summit, 17th and 18th of October, at which any deal need to be signed off so it needs to be done several days in advance so this is the last chance basically as I said earlier everyone else in the EU has completely um, rejected Boris Johnson's proposals the Irish government thus far has rejected um, Boris Johnson's proposals so I'm, I really I'm quite pessimistic over the chances of a, of a major breakthrough I mean obviously British politics is very unpredictable and we've been surprised on numerous occasions up until now but it would be absolutely incredible were there to be some detente, some uh, agreement at this meeting between Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson today. I just, I just don't see it happening. So Sienna, to coin a phrase, are these, are these talks dead in a ditch at this point? I think we can assume that's right. I mean, as Kevin says, there's this meeting today, but I think these meetings, uh, following all the comments of EU leaders, um, are basically just kind of checking in, taking stock of what's happening, kind of 
it's it, they're sort of updating each other, but I don't think anything is going to change, and I don't think anyone expects it to. I mean, the EU position essentially is we reached an agreement with Theresa May. We were perfectly happy with that agreement. Um, what Boris Johnson has come back with is worse than what we agreed from our point of view. So why on earth would we accept it? Um, we want to see more from the UK before we'll even consider offering some concessions in return. Whereas the UK's position is, well, actually, we've made concessions now, we've compromised, we've made a big offer, and we want to see some from the EU in return, and that is why you know things are going, going nowhere. One very Westminster-y subplot to all of this this week has been the role of Dominic Cummings, the PM's most senior advisor, and of course the uh, guy who headed up the successful 2016 Vote Leave campaign. Um, does it feel to you, Kevin, like Number Ten is, is speaking with with one voice on this <laughs> on this process, or is he uh, potentially going a little bit rogue? He certainly is going rogue. I mean, we're sitting in, in the lobby room at the moment, and this is where we have we get daily briefings from the Prime Minister's official spokesman. These are on the record briefings, and um, he, his name is James Slack. He tells us as much as he can tell us on the record. Um, but at the same time, he's got a guy working with him who's a political appointee, uh, who is a bit of a maverick character, Dominic Cummings, who is uh, freelancing, who is putting out um, the hard Brexit line from number 10. And in, in, in a way, I think, undermining James Slack in the process. Um, so, yeah, they're definitely not speaking with, with one voice. You've got the straight well, this is what's happened, this is what the Prime Minister thinks, line from the Prime Minister's official spokesman, and then you've got Dominic Cummings writing lengthy articles under the guise of number 10 source for The Spectator, basically saying, well, these talks are going to break down this week, um, Leo Varadkar isn't going to come to our rescue, in fact, he's he's reneged on promises that he's made, uh, and then we're just going to have to have a general election, and we're going to have to be a no-deal party, the Conservatives have to go in there, because the only way we can beat the Brexit party is to go in there for a hard no-deal uh, Brexit, and, you know, we'll smash Labour, and we'll get a majority, and everything will be fine after that, which... You know, I think is a is a huge assumption. So one of the things that Boris Johnson did was he brought in a lot of the senior figures from the Vote Leave campaign, and they are, you know, as you might imagine, very hard Brexiteers, and they look at the the tactics that they employed to win the referendum, and think that they can translate that into how to run a country, how to run Number Ten, and there is definite tension within Number Ten between these renegade folk coming in and just try to rip up the system uh, with like shock tactics like prorogation and going for the snap election and threatening to break the law uh, in fact breaking the law as they were found to have done by, by the Supreme Court against more moderate voices in there who think whoa hang on a minute this is not how we do things you're really not being helpful, you might think you're, you're helping your cause, but you're not really. So that is why there's this massive tension in number 10. Um, Sienna, there was a bit of pushback on Twitter, which is obviously the entire world, um, uh, about the decision of reporters to use these kind of number 10 source quotes and the idea that, that if it was Dominic Cummings, he didn't put his name to them. Mm. I mean, do you think there's a case for advisors just being being named now when they play such a, a senior role, or is that just going to mean the uh, contacts sort of dry up? It's a really difficult one because we would all publish that that source quote. Of course, we would yeah. All publish that because it does give a really interesting insight into what the government's thinking, what the strategy is. 
you know, what they're going to be doing in the election campaign. All of that's really interesting and useful for readers to know. I think maybe, maybe the solution is to publish this stuff alongside some analysis pointing out that you can't just take it as fact, you can't just take it as read. And James Forsyth, who posted that quote, is brilliant at that kind of analysis. So maybe that's a kind of solution that would satisfy a lot of people who feel as if journalists might be just, you know, taking these source quotes and reporting them without kind of criticism going along with them. I mean, I think for all of us, we all know how difficult kind of source relationship management is. You... There's a kind of balance that you've got to get right, and and as editor of Labour List, it's something that's really difficult, having con- having to concentrate on the Labour Party, and balance the sources within that party, and considering that you know it's so deeply factional and everyone's angry with everyone else within the party all the time, it, that's really difficult. But I mean, to reject source quotes altogether, it's just. Yes, we are all in competition with each other to get scoops, so it's not really a reasonable request. But I think there's some stuff that we could do to kind of manage that whole situation better. Yeah, you you shouldn't just take a source quote, even if it's a brilliant quote, at face value. You you have to be able to to question whether you're being spun or whether you're just being lied to. So you have to use your, your critical... Experience, your experience to analyse it and be, be, suss out whether what they're telling you is broadly mm. accurate or not. And I can understand why people who are outside journalism, outside politics, get frustrated at the number 10 source and number 10 insiders and well, why can't they just put their name to it? But the difficulty there is a lot of these folk, they just won't, they'll just clam up entirely um, and they won't give you stuff at all. So, mm. And then in that way, the public aren't being informed as well as I think they should be. So it is very difficult. I mean, I think as long as there are journalists, there are always going to be unnamed sources. But I, I agree with saying I think that our job is not just to parrot what they tell us. We have to be able to analyse it and take a view as to whether or not we're being, we're being lied to. I think we could talk about it forever because it's so interesting because it's this competition between us reporting things via Twitter a lot of the time and then writing it up actually for for online or yeah. for our papers as well because a lot of the time we hear something explosive and we want to get it straight out on Twitter before anyone else does but then you know you have to kind of develop that more into a fully rounded story later on and that sort of tension is just going to get worse because there's so much news all the time <laughs> yeah. you need to get it out of there totally Kevin um, are we seeing much pushback from the cabinet to the, the role of Dominic Cummings in these briefings that we've, we've seen yeah well, I mean we saw I thought it was interesting as well that for the first time since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister um, the cabinet started to leak uh, cabinet meetings started to leak in the way that they did on a weekly basis under Theresa May and we know how it all ended for her so this week's shared, um, cabinet meeting we, we heard afterwards what Nicky Morgan had raised concerns about uh, the Dominic Cummings piece in The Spectator, Julian Smith raising concerns, essentially about this idea that, that the Tories will go into the election pushing for no deal. Julian Smith is a Northern Ireland secretary. He made the point that it would be a disaster for the union uh, were that to happen. Nicky Morgan's criticisms were along the same line. So it, there is definite pushback in there. Now, supporters of Boris Johnson would turn around and say, well, hang on a minute, you guys knew what you were signing up to. 
he knew that Boris Johnson was willing to go for no deal. He made that very clear before you took your jobs in the Cabinet. So it's no use turning around and crying about it now that we're actually making good on that promise. But I just thought it was interesting that these splits in the Cabinet are now starting to burst out into the open and it's, it signals, signals some, some danger, I think, for the Prime Minister. Um, the, the PM, if, if reports is believed this morning, um, has been telling moderate Conservatives that he, he will not go into an election promising a, a no-deal Brexit. Can you, you tell us any more about that? Yeah, so you've got this, this caucus of Tory MPs called the One Nation Group who are moderate, um, centre-right, Tories, and you're not your hardline Brexiteers or hardline Remainers. They're just in the centre ground. <coughs> Excuse me. And they um, they were very alarmed by this suggestion that they're going to be a, essentially a no deal party to try and defeat the Brexit party in the next election. So they went in to see Boris Johnson number ten yesterday, and were told, were given assurances that no, no, don't worry, we'll make it clear that we're still going for a deal, but a no deal if all that fails. You know, pretty much where they are at the moment, where, where Theresa May was at, at, at the last election. So they came out of that meeting saying that they'd been reassured. Damien Green, who is the chair, I think, of, of, of that caucus, he said, um, uh, I looked him in the eyes, I looked Prime Minister in the eye, and he told me that we won't go for, we won't be a primarily no-deal party, and I and I believe him. Um, which, OK, fair enough. But then, as soon as he did that, number 10 sources, again, started briefing, saying, oh, hang on a minute, I think they were over-interpreting what the Prime Minister was saying, which, you know, might be one way of saying that the Prime Minister was lying to them when he, when he said it, you know. So it's, it's a great get-out, isn't it? Mm. Oh, yeah, it when I said I was going to do something, I didn't do it. Well, it's your fault for over-interpreting yeah, what I said. over-interpreting me there. And this does happen a lot with reporting, is that then you oh, on background, uh, none of that was true. <laughs> yeah, like, quite, yeah. Brilliant. So no on-the-record source, uh, no quote for that, no, you know, nothing we can actually kind of put very clearly to readers, yeah. it's so difficult. It is difficult. And it just it's, it's, it sounds as though these four MPs that went into him yesterday were sold a pup by right. Boris Johnson. He told them what they wanted to hear. But, you know, the, the big worry in the Boris Johnson camp is that the Brexit... If we don't leave on October the 31st, as he has repeatedly said we will, if that doesn't happen, it's a huge opportunity for the Brexit party to really eat into the Tory vote at the next election, and they are absolutely terrified that that will happen. So they've got to try and be as hard line as possible in the next election. But the difficulty for them there is that that's going to um, frighten off moderate voters, moderate Tory voters, but also moderate Tory MPs. So, you know, we're getting a um, special Saturday sitting of Parliament, uh, the first since the Falklands War in a few weeks' time. Um, why are we having that, and, and what should we expect to unfold in that um, fairly unusual session? Well, ostensibly, it's to either discuss uh, whatever's come out of the EU Council, so that's Thursday and Friday, so it makes sense to then be sitting on the Saturday, or to discuss no deal, basically. And we're going to see MPs kind of battle it out and probably very kind of vicious, fierce way, with perhaps some of that um, inflammatory language that we've been talking about over the last few weeks as well, about what the Ben Act means for this situation, uh, in what way the Prime Minister might be able to stretch the law and whether he plans to do so. I mean, really, the, the point of this session on a Saturday is it's being had so that the PM can continue kind of expressing this outrage about uh, the EU's resistance to his proposals, 
and show the public ahead of a likely early general election that the Prime Minister has tried his best, you know, from going to court to using harsh and upsetting language to MPs in the House of Commons uh, to, you know, sitting on the weekend. That is the point of this session. Kevin, does that does that strike you as the, the point of this session as part of that kind of blame game being ramped up? Without a doubt, what's also interesting is that I understand that this was um, leaked yesterday by, by number 10, I think, initially to Laura Koonsberg, I think, she was the first to, to tweet it, without any consultation with the Tory whips. I was told that the Tory whips, I was told it had, quotes, fallen from the sky. They just didn't even know it was coming. So they were like, well, you know, we don't know what it's about and the Labour Whips office were frantically trying to find out from the Tory Whips office by via the usual channels as they're called what the hell the Saturday sitting would be for and they were like don't know I haven't got a clue we haven't, we haven't been told yet we, you, you know as much as we do which is utterly bizarre so so yeah it's going to be quite an occasion because as well as that we've got a massive people's vote march through the centre of London on the same day and the Extinction Rebellion folk who are out there at the moment they're, they're, they're still going to be doing their thing so it's going to be utter chaos that day but you, you, you could see anything he could even maybe bring forward his uh, an early election motion that day mm-hmm. perhaps or he could make um, MPs vote for an extension you know a, a, almost like a symbolic vote really to get it down there that I voted against an extension that's Boris Johnson and all these guys here yeah, there's their names they all voted for an extension so the reason we're staying in the EU is because of that lot mm-hmm. not because of us exactly so let's move away from um, bitter recriminations and internal splits and chaos and focus on the Labour Party. Um, <laughs> Good link. There like we that. go. There like we go. That. Seamless as ever. Um, so, Kevin, there's, there's been a big <coughs> shake-up in Labour's top team this week um, yeah. <coughs> that could have pretty big implications for the way the party is run and the way they fight the next general election. Talk us through what's happened. Yeah, I'll talk through the basic nuts and bolts, but I think Senna, given her massive insider knowledge, will be able to give us even more detail. But essentially what's happened is that uh, Carrie Murphy, um, uh, General Corbyn's Chief of Staff, has been moved out of the Leader's Office back to Southside, which is the Labour HQ building on um, Victoria Street, um, nominally to head up planning for the upcoming general election, but it's widely understood to have been uh, essentially a sacking. She's been sidelined, kicked out of Lotto because um, of behind-the-scenes splits, and it seems to have all come to a head in the last few days. I'm told that she was uh, sacked over the phone on Sunday by Bob Kerslake. This is where it gets really bizarre, but he was a former head of the Home Civil Service, um, but is very close to John McDonnell, and he was given the, the task, I believe, from Bermuda. He was in Bermuda and he phoned Carrie Murphy to tell her that she was being moved out of the leader's office. Um, she's not the only one to go. Amy Jackson, who's uh, political secretary uh, for the leader, she's also been moved back to HQ. Uh, and there's a guy called Joe Bradley, who is a union liaison guy. He's, he's also being, being um, removed from, from Lotto. Now, the, the spin, that the official line from Labour is that this is all nothing to see here. This happened at the last general election, Carrie moved to HQ, she masterminded the whole campaign and we had a great result, so we're, 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 we're going for that outcome again. But in reality, there's been a lot of ill feeling behind the scenes and we believe that John McDonnell in particular has got heartily sick of, of Carrie Murphy and was one of the, the prime movers behind um, getting her out. 
Sienna, this follows another a big loss in, in Corbyn's team, the um, exit of his, or, or soon-to-be exit of his, his long-standing policy chief, mm-hmm. Andrew Fisher. Um, what did we learn this week about his reasons for leaving? So the Fisher resignation story broke during Labour conference, mm-hmm. which was such, such an interesting weekend kick-off uh, conference with. Um, so on the Sun, uh, Sunday Times reported on this, and that he... So he confirmed then that um, to spend more time with his young family, he would be resigning by the end of the year. Um, and now, this week, we had Sportbox, which is this, uh, I mean, supposedly leadership aligned, but actually often irritates the leadership. Uh, <laughs> website. Website, online publication, um, reporting. Basically, they just published the Andrew Fisher um, email, this memo, explaining his reasons for resignation in full, which hadn't been done before. Um, but it seems like Sportbox got in a spot of trouble because uh, soon enough that post was deleted. <laughs> Thankfully, I uh, copy-pasted the whole thing, so I thought that might happen. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was published in full, and it does make for fascinating reading. And not great reading for the leader's office either, does it? Well, no, and I, you know, that may have something to do with the fact that it was deleted, but... Um, it seems that someone might have thought that was a good look for Carrie Murphy, but uh, I think a lot of other people will have disagreed with that judgment call there. And actually, I mean, there's so much in this Fisher email to talk about. It's every single line is a huge story, yeah. basically. He describes, he goes through all these things that happened on a single day with him as a policy chief. And... It, I mean, it is quite. It just paints a picture of a chaotic environment, mm-hmm. and the other thing that uh, led people to point the finger at Carrie Murphy for certainly informing Squawk Box ahead of publication of this story is that at the start of the article, it was all about how Carrie had done an amazing job uh, defending Jeremy Corbyn and carrying out all the jobs that no one else wanted to do, blah blah blah, um, and it did. It read like a piece which was definitely doing its best to defend Carrie Murphy after she'd been removed from the leader's office. And then it stuck on the end, this, this long email from Andrew Fisher, which was obviously only sent to a very small number of people mm-hmm. and which was supposed to be highly confidential. In fact, I think in the email itself he says, I'm going to delete it said, yeah. after two hours, you know. Exactly. I'm not going to make any further comment. I'm switching my phone off. Hilariously, some defenders of Sportbox then said, well, of course he deleted it after two hours because that's what the Fisher email said that he would do. Oh, for that was their justification for it. There yeah. you go. So it was it was a remarkable remarkable turn of events. So uh, underlying all of this seems to be some tension between Jeremy Corbyn's team and, and John McDonald's team. Um, mm. we, we hear stories about kind of splits between them. Every, it seems every summer there's something about a, a split, and then McDonald goes out and says this is utter utter nonsense. Does it feel like something might have changed now that there is there is a attention there that, that wasn't there before yeah definitely and there's another story a really great story in the Financial Times this morning um, I don't know if you've seen it saying about the shadow cabinet this week in which um, John McDonnell apparently made clear that he doesn't think he thinks a snap election is a trap being laid by the Tories for the Labour Party and that Labour should not fall into that trap by agreeing to an election which isn't the Jeremy Corbyn line he is desperate for a general election um, or at least chomping, he, at the bit. chomping at the bit he's going to say in a speech later on today So, um, and he's painted himself into a corner because the reason Labour voted against the snap election a few weeks ago was because no deal hadn't been taken off the table and the line was as soon as no deal is off the table we want a general election 
Um, the FT story also says that Keir Starmer made clear his reservations about an early election. He said he's been knocking on doors uh, in his constituency and Remain voters are just not coming back to Labour in the way that you would maybe expect. Um, Emily Thornberry has just been on uh, the BBC earlier on this morning also saying that she is, you know, that we should get Brexit sorted first before going for a general election. Basically, we should have a referendum on Brexit, which is also the Tom Watson line. So there is definite tension behind the scenes there. Um, and it's difficult for Labour because, you know, if Boris Johnson does come back again and say, right, OK, against my better judgment, we're staying in the EU after October 31st, now let's have this election. It's difficult for Labour to again turn around and say no, especially because the SNP, they're desperate to have an election. So the pressure on Labour will be immense. But I can see when it goes to a vote, I can see there being a massive rebellion amongst, amongst Labour MPs who just are looking at the opinion polls and thinking, you know, we're potentially marching towards the sound of gunfire here, you know. Sienna, in 2017, um, the, when Theresa May called a snap election, Labour very much ran on, a, on domestic policy pledges and, and they, they made a running really without talking about Brexit. Do you think they can... I mean, it sounds like they can't repeat that trick a, a second time if they wanted to. That is the big concern, and it's why so many Labour MPs are hesitant, because they do want to fight the election on all those domestic issues that Labour can actually win on. And they want to be promoting, uh, and, and Lotto wants to be promoting, all of those radical policies that were agreed at conference a couple of weeks ago. We're talking about like the four-day week that John McDonnell has agreed to promote. And, you know, the Green Industrial Revolution, although there is some controversy over the 2030 target, mm. <laughs> and, all, and all of those policies that, you know, can get Labour members enthusiastic about uh, Labour's platform and the next manifesto, and not to be talking about the equivocation over, you know, Labour's position in this next referendum that they're suggesting. It, and it looks like, you know, that wouldn't be possible. Obviously, the hope is that Labour could just say, look, our position is not complicated. It's very clear. We are saying we'll give you a final say on what happens next. That's it. It can be explained in one line. But, you know, every single time someone goes on question time to explain Labour's Brexit position, it's an absolute disaster. I mean, whether they're saying, whether they're just explaining it really badly, or they're saying, look, yes, this is really complicated, which, you know, immediately you've lost the argument. It's just not, it's not working out. I, I watched Emily Thornbury at party conference the day after they'd made that decision and she was asked on a panel to sum up Labour's position in one sentence and it, it went on for about six sentences and mm. just kind of kept going and trailed off and I thought immediately like this is going to be a problem. There is some suspicion the among some quarters that maybe some front benches do that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let, let's zoom out a little bit and look at um, how Labour would fight that next election. Um, of course they, they're going to need candidates, they're going to need people to uh, stand and you've been taking a really close look at the selections process what's the kind of state of play so far? Right, I'm obsessed with Labour selections and they're... <laughs> My name is Shana and I am obsessed I've got a problem <laughs> and, and it's process as well because so there's been huge controversy in the Labour Party among members who are absolutely furious especially in Nottingham East where they had their candidate imposed last time Chris Leslie, hmm. you'll know how that worked out. And in Vauxhall as well, where there was this huge drama over Martha Osmore, who was basically ousted in order to make way for Kate Hoey. Again, we know how that's worked out. Hmm. So there is a strong feeling among the grassroots that not only they want more democratic processes, but it works out really badly when they don't have them, when they don't get their say. 
and uh, you know Jared Amara. There's so many concerns and so many cases of that. So that's why members were really angry when in mid-September the Labour Party decided that it would continue with its trigger ballot votes, so reselections, uh, giving members a say as to whether they want to automatically reselect their sitting Labour MP or not. But they would pause all selections across the country apart from, you know, a couple, notably Nilford South, and that has gone <laughs> also very, very wrong recently because one of the front runners was suspended from the party over sexual harassment complaint. So it's been decided this week by the NEC, the, that's Labour's ruling body, their officers group, that they they're gonna have uh, they're gonna have selection meetings now. But the members won't have a say over the first two stages of the process, which are crucial. So right. first of all, in each seat you've got long listing, then you've got short listing, and then you've got a vote as to who's going to be the candidate. And usually that's done locally by a selection committee. But the NEC for all the most important seats, so uh, retirement seats, defection seats, they're mostly safe labour. They're going to take control of those two, first two stages of the process, which means Theoretically, I would never suggest that they would do such a thing, but they could basically put on the candidate that they like, the applicant that they like for that seat, and then two or three duds who are never going to win. So is this an attempt essentially by the leadership to make sure that their chosen candidate gets picked? So the most interesting aspect of this story, even if I say so myself, <laughs> is, is that both Jeremy Corbyn and Tom Watson were united in pushing wow. <laughs> a member-led process. So something that would be fully in control of the local members, but just very, very truncated. And it's actually the rest of the officers group that's mostly unions and perhaps people who want seats themselves. Mm. And they was they are the ones who overruled both Jeremy and Tom and decided to go for this more NEC or regional executive focused process. So that would that gives the lie then to the suggestion that Corbyn is desperate to basically just get all his people in. Because why else? Why why would he be like? Well, one, why would he be united with Tom Watson for a change? But also, why would he want to? It would appear give up control of the of the process by giving it to the members. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everyone is agreed that Jeremy Corbyn, in this instance, has showed that he genuinely wants, you know, a properly democratic process and not to annoy members, a lot of whom have very good reasons to be annoyed about that kind of shortened process. Because basically, saying that part of it is going to be controlled by the NEC is the kind of process you would impose once a snap election is called. You'd say, okay, like in 2017, where there were lots of MPs, NEC impositions of candidates. Right, uh, you know, we clearly don't have time for all these meetings and everything. We just got to get on with it, and that's done. And a lot of people are saying that an election hasn't been called, and also a lot of these constituencies have been literally calling to have these meetings for months, if not years. So there has been time in the past. Yeah. And Jeremy Corbyn is clearly recognising that. Yeah, fair, fair, fair play, because I mean, he has always said. It should be a member-led party. So, so you know, we've already seen some sitting Labour MPs triggered, so they'll have to they'll have to fight again to stand as a candidate. Um, is there any common theme uniting those who who will have to um, face this battle, or, or uh, you know, is it in, entirely kind of local case by case basis? I think it's both. I think there is a common thread 
I mean, in terms of the fact that three out of four who have been triggered so far are women and a lot of the, the people who are being threatened with being triggered uh, are women as well. So, I mean, there is going to there are concerns being raised, and also because in terms of it being on a case by case basis, it is because it's not always the left against the right. It's often really issues that are so particular to that local area. Right. South Shields, for instance, that is, I mean, that Emma Lilbuck has been triggered, and that has a history going way back mm. from before she was selected. It's an absolute mess there. Well, she put a statement, I read it on, on Twitter, and it was yeah. vicious, really going for local local uh, Labour Party members. It sounds like a real cesspit up there. Yeah, I mean, she has uh, been in legal battles with the Labour Party, actually, and there's a story come out today as well just about the fact that she's she's actually said that she's, she's looking to adopt uh, and the Labour Party isn't allowing her to suspend a, her trigger process during that, even though it allows uh, women on maternity leave or recently on maternity leave to have their triggers suspended for at least a year because of that. So, I mean, it, it's really, really messy. But, I mean, in Emma Lil Buck's case, it's not, it's not, you know, Corbynites attacking a Corbyn sceptic. It's not that at all, the situation. It's, it's something, it's, you know, this whole battle between councillors and the MP and, you know, the local party difficulties and all that sort of stuff. But also, she, she says that it's misogyny. So that is something that is going to come up again and again. Is there not an argument for, you know, Labour are fighting with themselves th- over this process? The MPs are having to fight local battles just to stay on the ticket at the next election when, you know, with an election just round the corner, surely a more productive use of their time would be attacking the, the Conservatives, I guess, would be the counter-argument to it. Labour MPs were saying, you know, with the, we're, we're not attending Labour conference, we're not able to do other things because we're having to focus on these reselection battles. Um, in their local parties, and that's you know what they're having to focus on. I mean, there is there is an argument as well. You know, that complicates this is that you know perhaps the Labour Party shouldn't be continuing trigger ballots while suspending selections and making that process a lot shorter and more centralised. In particular, that's actually an argument that's being made across the board. This isn't a factional thing. It's members on the left and right who are who are saying that. Guys, we've just got time for some listeners' questions, and fortunately, we haven't been disappointed this week. Yeah, last week, Sienna, can you believe it? We got none. No one sent in a single question. Can you believe that? Lost in the post. Matt's theory was that we had answered all the questions before. Yeah. Our listeners were fully informed of everything, so they didn't have to ask any questions. But... Harry Brady is back. Good old Harry. Harry sends his apologies for no question last week as well. That's exactly how it's done. I'm still awaiting an apology Quite from the rest of our listeners, frankly. Apology accepted, Harry. So, Harry asks, will the grand coalitions of Labour and the Conservatives survive Brexit and the next election? He's got two questions. He's added a little bit at the end. If not, will this lead to adopting PR, proportional representation, voting? So will the Grand Coalition survive Brexit? And if not, will we get a uh, big change to the way we elect MPs? Uh, well, you could argue, I suppose, that the Grand Coalition is already fracturing and that you've seen so many Labour and, and Tory MPs defect, to the, well, first of all, to the change group, whatever they're called now, and, and the Lib Dems. So there's a bit of that. But, you know, we've, we've heard this uh, idea posited so many times in the past and... For one reason or another, Labour and the Tories have survived. I mean, I don't think we've ever been through anything quite like this at the moment. And if if they're going to split, it's going to happen now. But I think just about so far, 
they're hanging in there, hanging together. As I say, there's a few stragglers breaking off at the edges, but I think the grand coalitions that the parties are, while under huge strain, will probably hang together, I think. CNN, do you reckon they'll hold it together? I mean, there's actually a lot of pressure on Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour leadership to adopt a different stance on our voting system. There are people really close to Jeremy personally who, you know, campaign on that issue and want a more um, proportional system. So if Labour doesn't manage to secure a majority at the next election and then, you know, its efforts are thwarted by, for instance, Joe Swinson saying there's absolutely no way going into coalition with you and the SNP stuff. I mean, for a lot of people, that's just unthinkable to strike a deal with a pro-Scottish independence party. So if all of that kind of goes wrong and repeatedly Labour can't get a majority, you know, perhaps, certainly the pressure will increase on the party to change its position on that. I mean, we had, obviously, the referendum. Back when referendums didn't split the country in two, we had the AV referendum, if you remember that one. I think 2011, perhaps, that was. I campaigned in that one. I think I was 15 or 16. Did you campaign for AV? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought you would. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think there wasn't much appetite then, certainly amongst the public, for any kind of change that was seen as a bit of a... Uh, minority interest really um, so there might well be but it doesn't strike me that there's a huge groundswell of opinion out there for people demanding a change to the voting system so I think that may yet be some way off Quite quite a few of the people who worked on the anti-AV campaign ended up working for Vote Leave didn't they so there was, it was right, almost yeah. like a dry run for the, the 2016 uh, yeah, campaign so. that a lot of the same strategies and tactics were used they actually learned from that AB campaign and, and really did put that into use in the Leave campaign. There you go. I remember a poster of a, it's just a baby, and it, yeah, said, yeah. it said she needs a maternity ward, not a yeah, new voting Dan, system. Dan that was Dan Hodges. Dan Hodges was behind that one. Yeah, he was like, was he like PR man for the No to AV campaign or something, wasn't he? He yeah. was heavily involved, yeah. He's yeah, now a, he was, he's a fine man, Dan. He's a Mail on Sunday columnist. I mean, a lot of people maybe listening to this hate the guy on Twitter or whatever. But on a personal level, Dan is a lovely, lovely fella. But yeah, he does get some stick over that one. That was a particularly brutal uh, ad campaign. So we've got, um, there's a few more questions. So um, Alex Brown asks, um, so there's a big battle battle now underway to replace John Burko as Speaker of the House of Commons. Hmm. Um, We'll find out by the end of the month, or we should find out. I think the start start of November, yeah. Start of November, he'll be uh, replacing him. So Alex Brown asks, which speaker will be the most fun? I mean, I was sitting next to Alex uh, during the lobby hustings that we had this week for the speaker candidates, and I know why he's asking that question. It's because he was bored throughout that. <laughs> <laughs> he none of them were any fun. No way. Oh, no I see. Way. I did wonder what the context of that question was. Yeah, I mean, I, I did try to think of it, and I, yeah, there's none of them. There's none of them are like you know, comedians. Let's put it that way. I mean, Chris Bryant, I guess, is a bit yeah, of a character. He's, he's the he definitely comes out with some. The sassiest. There you go. Cutting insults, but. He kind of promises to speak less in the chair, so maybe that won't be quite as fun as we might assume. Yeah, although a speaker that speaks less might not be a bad thing, to be honest, compared to Berko. That's his argument, certainly. Yeah. Some would say. We've got a wildcard candidate from Alex Lawson who asks, should Colleen Rooney run to be the next speaker? Yes, she'd be amazing. I don't, don't know about that. I think she should definitely, definitely put in charge of the Brexit negotiations. If anyone can crack the Brexit conundrum, it's surely Colleen Rooney after she outed Whoever was using Rebecca Vardy's Instagram account. We'll have to wait the findings of that forensic investigation into 
to who is using it. And and um, I guess from your answer there, you, you've kind of answered Shane Halfpenny Ray's next question: Whose side are you on, Colleen or Rebecca? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, taking it face value, you need to go with Colleen. I mean, you can't have anything but admiration for the way that she smoked out the account that was leaking stuff to the sun. It was incredible. And not, and not some, just that, it was the stories, the made-up stories that she, that she came up with, you know, were utterly incredible. They were so clever. The one I read was the one about how she had uh, apparently uh, had gone to Spain, I think it was, to look at gender realignment um, procedure for her unborn kid because she was desperate for a daughter and she'd had four boys so she wanted the next baby to be a girl so that apparently you can go to Spain or something spend a few grand and they'll sort the sex of your fetus I don't even know if that's true I don't even know if you can do that but that was it she made, she made that up herself it's an amazing story and the sun ran it it was still there yesterday I read it it's amazing. They, they put a little caveat at the bottom saying we did approach Colleen's representatives at the time. <laughs> All right. Uh, just just okay. to make clear. Um, <laughs> still up there, though. And yeah. it went on for months. I think she's like, she's just a five month operation to identify the person who was ratting around. Many months ago, she tweeted, being like, look, there, there keeps being these stories about me, and they're just, you know, I don't know how they're getting out there. And someone replied, going, you know what you should do? I've got this idea for you. You should plant these bit, you know, and put them to certain people, and then you'll find out. You'll find out the person who's doing it. And so that, she clearly followed that advice. That Twitter user then, planted the seed. Exactly. And that Twitter user has been saying that, you know, he might need an agent because he's getting so many media accounts now. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, what a wonderful break it's been from everything else going yeah. on in Westminster. That was nice so. not to have to talk about Brexit or, or the Labour Party. I enjoyed that last bit. That is all we've got time for on the podcast this week. <coughs> uh, if you want to keep in touch with everything that's going on in Westminster, you can, of course, sign up to our free seven-day-a-week breakfast briefing email. Just go to politicshome.com forward slash register and uh, keep your questions coming in. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Mm-hmm.